And we are glad that you are here this morning. We're going to open with just a, a short prayer to, to calm our hearts and our minds and get ready to worship the Lord. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this week, we are starting a new teaching series here at Redeemer, and it, we are using the scripture in Matthew 16, 13 through 19, where Jesus is having a conversation about his identity with his disciples, and he asks every one of them an all-important question, who do you say that I am? This is the unavoidable question that we are still asked today, and getting this question right is both the, the essence of salvation and the starting point for a lifelong journey. So I encourage you to come back um, the next two weeks and hear the conclusion to this series um, as we talk about that all-important question. But this morning, let me open with prayer that I left down here in the pew. <laughs> Let's um, open our morning with prayer. O oh God, our guide and our guardian, you have led us apart from the busy world into the quiet of your house. Grant us grace to worship you in spirit and in truth, to the comfort of our souls and the upbuilding of every good purpose and holy desire. Enable us to do more perfectly the work to which you have called us, that we may not fear the coming of night when we shall resign into your hands the tasks which you have committed to us. So may we worship you not with our lips at this hour, but in word and deed all the days of our lives, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Has it ever happened to you? You're in the middle of a sermon. No, you're in the middle of a busy day and maybe even a busy week. And when you started the day, there were 15 things to do on your list and you've done four. And there are still 11 left. And it's 3.30 in the afternoon. And you're hot and you're tired and you're going just as fast as you can to get through everything before the day is over and then... You suddenly stop and you say to yourself, why? Why am I doing this? It happens to a lot of us. It's a good question to ask yourself from time to time. Why in the world am I doing this? Maybe you've seen the sign that says, if you don't know what you're doing, act like you do. Most people won't know the difference. From time, we've used that principle this morning. From, from time to time, it's also good for us as a church to stop and ask the question, what is it that we're trying to do here? It's especially important to think about that question in reference to our Christian education programming, our outreach ministries in the community, our special events, and even what we do in worship here every week. What does it mean to be the Church of Jesus Christ in the world today? Are we doing what God wants us to do as the body of Christ in this community? I think it's an absolutely good thing that from time to time we stop and rethink the purpose for our existence and about our health and vitality as a congregation. For the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what the church is all about. In order to do that, we'll go to the New Testament and look at what Jesus himself had to say about the church. After all, he is the head of the church, and he is also the one who builds and sustains the church with his presence. This morning, our text is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, in the very first mention of the church. Jesus only mentioned the church twice in the Gospels, once in this chapter and once in Matthew, chapter 18. We have no other recorded statements from our Lord on this subject. 
Matthew 16 is the first, so it's important that we know what it says. This chapter is a critical turning point in the ministry of Jesus. By this time, he has been preaching for many months. He is well known to the nation of Israel. His fame has spread far and wide. The common people have embraced him. They have seen his miracles and heard his teaching, and the word has spread from village to village. Have you heard about this man, Jesus? Along the dusty roads of Galilee, people discussed him, and they wondered who he really was. More importantly, the religious leaders have heard about Jesus, and they don't like what they've heard. He is a threat to their vested interests. Earlier, there had been a bitter confronta confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. They had accused him of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In essence, they said, you have come straight from hell. When we come to Matthew 16, it is clear that Jesus has been rejected by his own people. His fate has been sealed. The shadow of the cross looms over him. And even though the common people heard him gladly, they did not know who he was. They liked him, but they did not worship him. To them, he was a great teacher and a great miracle worker. Nothing more. So Jesus, in the midst of growing opposition and surrounded by crowds of people who liked him but did not understand him, in the rising turmoil that would lead eventually to the cross, did an unusual thing. He took his disciples and he left the nation of Israel. He went north out of Israel into Gentile territory to a place called Caesarea Philippi. What happened there would change the course of history. Jesus knows that before long, he will be crucified. It is inevitable because the nation has rejected him. Therefore, his time is limited and his strategy must change. He must form a new society to carry on in his name after he is gone. But before he can do that, he must know where his followers stand. He must bring them out in the open. Are they with him? Do they know who he really is? If you want to think of it in school terms, Matthew 16 is the disciples' final exam. He has never before put them on the spot. He has never before directly asked them this question, but he does in Matthew 16. In fact, Jesus actually asked his disciples two questions. One was the warm-up, and the other was the real thing. The first question is in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? This might have been the very first Gallup poll. Jesus already knew the answer. He wanted, to know his, he wanted his disciples to acknowledge what other people were saying, so they gave him the four most popular answers about who Jesus is. First one was, some say that you're John the Baptist. That was Herod's answer. Others say Elijah. That was very popular because the Jews expected Elijah to come back to earth. Others said Jeremiah, who was the greatest of the later prophets. And then the final answer was he was one of the prophets. He was, one, he was a spokesman for God. I'm sure that when we read a passage like this, we tend to downplay those answers because we already know the right answer to the question. We've read the book. We know how it ends. And we think, those fools, didn't they know the right answer? But their answers were meant to be flattering. It would be as if someone came in here today and asked, who do you think I am? And we answered with the names of some admired people of our day. 
And if we really meant that, it would, it would be a great compliment, even if we were wrong. So even if Jesus' followers were wrong, you have to give them credit. At least they were wrong on the right side of the issue. At least they knew that Jesus wasn't a bad man. One commentator said that when the common people gave these answers, they were like a moth hovering around the light. They were fascinated by what they could not understand. There are two worthwhile points to note. First, the common people loved Jesus, even though they did not fully understand him. Second, it is quite possible, even with a very sincere heart, to misunderstand who Jesus is. It is possible for a person to be sympathetic to spiritual truth and still not understand who the Lord is. That is, it is possible to misunderstand with the best of intentions. This is quite typical of us today. There are many people who like Jesus, but they don't worship him. They think he's a good man, even a great man, even a man who had a special relationship to God, but they do not believe he is the son of God from heaven. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, maybe the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. He taught for many years at Oxford University and later at Cambridge University in England. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis spoke to the issue of people who like Jesus and respect him, but do not worship him. And this is what Lewis had to say. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And that's from mere Christianity. To be almost right about Jesus is to be totally wrong. Why? Because we are not saved by good opinions about Jesus. We are not saved because we have a good feeling about Jesus. We are not saved because we like his moral teaching. That is not enough. Even to come close is not enough. The truth about Jesus Christ must be personally understood, personally grasped, personally experienced, and personally possessed. Close doesn't do it. That is why Jesus, having asked the first question, now asks a second one. Who do you say I am? In the Greek text, the word you has enormous stress. In fact, the you really goes at the first of the sentence. It's as if Jesus is saying, but you who have followed me and have known me from the beginning, who do you say that I am? It is the greatest question in all of the universe, and it is the one which every one of us must eventually answer. Every one of us. You will notice that Peter answers for all of the disciples. He was the designated loudmouth. It's what he did. Whenever there was a question, Peter would always be the first one to answer. And when Peter answers here, he is not speaking simply for himself, but for all of the disciples. 
His answer is very specific. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And if we go back again to the original language of the New Testament, the word the is repeated four times. We could translate it this way. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Peter was saying, I know who you are. You are the Messiah sent to save us, and you are the Son of God from heaven. It is short and simple. Everything necessary for salvation is included in that statement. I think some people would read that statement and say, well, that's no big deal. I would say that too. Sure, a lot of us would probably stand up and say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Peter was the first person in human history to ever say that out loud. And he said it when few were with Jesus and so many were against him. He deserves a lot of credit, for without his confession, there would be no Christian church. In that sense, there is a direct line between the community of Caesarea Philippi and this congregation. Without Peter's confession, we wouldn't be here today. There are two other things we should notice here. Peter said, you are the Messiah, not I say you are the Messiah, or people say you are the Messiah, or even we got together and took a vote and we think you are the Messiah. It is a declarative statement. You are the Messiah. Nobody can say that except by the work of the Holy Spirit because no person can discover that truth on their own. That is why Jesus in verse 17 gives Peter a blessing. You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, it's a remarkable thing, Peter, that a mere human discovered this. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. You did not go to seminary and learn this. You're not a PhD. This came because God in heaven revealed it to you. There's a principle in verse 17 that's worth thinking about. The truth about Jesus can only be revealed to those to whom the Father chooses to reveal it. That is, the truth about Jesus is divinely revealed. If a person does not see this, we are not to despise them or to argue with them, but we are to pray for them. If a person is blind, we don't curse their blindness. We pray that God will open their eyes. Finally, notice in verse 18 that Jesus calls him Peter, not Simon or Simon Peter. In verse 17, he is called Simon. In verse 18, he is called Peter, which means rock. Same man, different name. From Simon to Peter in just one verse. What caused the change? The change was caused by the confession that Peter made. What changed Peter? He didn't change. What changed is that he made a confession of faith. Which leads me to the last question for today. What are we doing here? What is this church all about? The church of Jesus Christ is made up of people like us who confess one revolutionary truth, that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of the living God. That is the fundamental, that is the fundamental principle of the church. It is our fundamental organizing principle. It is the thing that which makes us forever different from every other organization, guild, service club, fraternal order, everything. We are joined here today as people who believe one thing, that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of the living God, 
We have staked our lives on that fact. And until we believe that and confess that, we cannot be called a Christ follower. It doesn't matter that we may have positive feelings about Jesus or that we may think he was a very good man. We are not a Christian until we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What I'm saying is that we believe something special about someone very special. We believe that a man once walked this earth who was like no other man before or since. He said things no other person has ever said. He did things no other person has ever done. He made claims for himself which, if they were not true, brand him as history's greatest fraud. He gathered around himself a group of people who believed his claims. He predicted his own death, and then he predicted his resurrection from the dead. He made good on all of his claims. And after he left this earth, his followers took his message and spread it around the world. For over 2,000 years, countless men, women, and children have believed that this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Son of the living God, and they have staked their lives upon it. That's what Christians believe. That's what this church believes. That's what motivates us to do what we do. Is that why you're sitting in this room today? What got you here? Please indulge me for a moment while I tell you why I'm here. As most of you know, this weekend is my last weekend preaching from this pulpit. I'm moving on in a couple of weeks to be the pastor at Hope United Methodist Church in Hastings. But how did I get here? Before I answer that, let me ask you another question. Do you know what our mission statement is here at Redeemer? It's on the wall as you walk into the worship center. Our mission statement is to connect people to the love and life of Jesus Christ. So how did I get here? People were intentional throughout my life about connecting me to the love and life of Jesus Christ, nurturing me along until I came to understand that he is the son of the living God. And while I never stopped believing that, I did stop attending church for a long time. I moved to DeWitt 17 years ago. We hadn't been here long when my neighbor asked if she could take my son to Vacation Bible School. That was my first contact with Redeemer. Shortly after that were junior high dances for my daughter here at the church. We don't do those anymore. <laughs> and camp at Bayshore. My daughter was even given camp scholarship monies even though we weren't even members. And then, finally, I attended a service here. And I got a thank you note in the mail and discovered later that Pastor Rod noticed me sitting in the back pew with my friend and asked who I was. So what's the point? The point is you just never know when you're being intentional about connecting people to the love and life of Jesus Christ what the result will be. Everything we do, everything, has a ripple effect on the world around us. Just as, a small pebble just as a small pebble tossed in the lake can cause ripples that touch shore far beyond where it entered the water, so too our actions can cause repercussions, good and bad, far beyond our wildest imagination. My invitation to attend worship here led 14 years later to me standing here preparing to lead a church myself. Will that be everybody's experience? Of course not. But you just never know how the seeds you plant will grow. And while you can't do it, it might not be possible this year, but next year, take your neighbor kid to vacation Bible school. 
This year, invite your entire neighborhood to hang out with you at Redeemer's Summer Block Party, the Summer Fun Night happening August 2nd. Get your kids and their friends in our youth groups. Gather a group of friends and commit to doing a Bible study together. I did that, and 12 years later, I have lived life with those people. Together we have laughed, we have cried, we have celebrated, mourned, and really just done life together. Redeemer offers you a free access to a huge library of studies through Right Now Media. Use it. Connect yourself and your friends to the love and life of Jesus Christ. Will any one of those things cause you or your friends to say that Christ is the Son of the living God? Not at first. But you've started the ripple effect. Just as the ripples in this picture were started by one small finger, just a touch, so too will your small touches, your invitations, start ripples that will go far beyond you ever imagined. When my grandparents first started taking me to our little Baptist church in Battle Creek, they would have never imagined that I'd be preaching in a large United Methodist church in DeWitt nearly 50 years later. But they're believing that Christ is the son of the living God and wanting their granddaughter to believe the same brought me to this moment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, talks about the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us in this life of faith. My grandparents are in that cloud surrounding me, and I expect to be there one day too, surrounding those that follow me. So where do you stand today on Jesus? You can't leave until you answer. And I'm not going to lock the door or tie you down. And you don't have to answer out loud, but you've got to answer. Who is Jesus? A good man? A great teacher? One of the finest people who ever walked the face of this earth? Or is he the Christ, the son of the living God? The answer you give matters. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you earnestly today, seeking to know your son is the son of the living God. We know that everything we have is a gift from you. Our prayer is that we would not think of your son as merely a great man, but as the one through whom our lives are redeemed, if only we proclaim him as our God. Lord, we seek to, as you commanded, love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. Help us to love our neighbors, and in so doing, start the ripples that will touch their lives. Introduce them to you, and connect them to your love and your life, so that they too will believe your son is the son of the living God ensuring that they and we will have life everlasting. And in your name we pray. Amen.